There was a whisking of cloth and suddenly Lord Vetinari was in his seat with Drumnot by his side. The buzz of conversation ceased as the patrician looked around the hall. Thank you for coming, ladies and gentlemen, he said. Let us get on, shall we? This is not a court of law as such. It is a court of inquiry, which I have convened to look into the circumstances surrounding the disappearance of ten tons of gold bullion from the Royal Bank of Ank, Morpork. The good name of the bank has been called into question, and so we will consider all matters apparently pertaining to it. No matter where they lead, indeed, Mr. Cosmo Lavish, no matter where they lead. We have your assurance on this, Cosmo insisted. I believe I have already given it, Mr. Lavish. Can we proceed? I have appointed the learned Mr. Slant, of Morecambe, Slant and Honey Place, as counsel to the inquiry. He will examine and cross-examine as he sees fit. I think it is known to all that Mr. Slant commands the total respect of Ankh-Morpork's legal profession. Mr. Slant bowed to Vetinari and let his steady gaze take in the rest of the room. It lingered a long time on the ranks of the lavishes. First, the matter of the gold, said Vetinari. I present Drumnot, my secretary and chief clerk, who overnight took a team of my senior clerks into the bank. Am I in the dock here? said Moist. Vetinari glanced at him and looked down at his paperwork. I have here your signature on a receipt for some ten tons of gold, he said. Do you dispute its authenticity? No, but I thought that was just a formality, said Moist. Ten tons of gold is a formality, is it? And did you later break into the vault? Well, yes, technically. I couldn't unlock it because Mr. Bent had fainted inside and left the key in the lock. Ah, yes, Mr. Bent, the chief cashier. Is he with us today? A quick survey found the room bentless. I understood that he was in a somewhat distressed state, but not seriously harmed, said Lord Vetinari. Commander Vimes, please be so good as to send some men along to his lodgings, will you? I would like him to join us. He turned back to Moist. No, Mr. Lipvig, you are not on trial, as yet. Generally speaking, before someone is put on trial, it helps to have some clear reason for doing so. It is considered neater. I must point out, though, that you took formal responsibility for the gold, which, we must assume, was clearly gold and clearly in the vault at the time. In order to have a thorough understanding of the bank's disposition at this time, I asked my secretary to audit the bank's affairs, which he and his team did last night. If I'm not actually on trial at this moment, can I get rid of these shackles? They do rather bias the case against me, said Moist. Yes, very well. Guards, see to it. Now, Mr. Drumnot, if you please. I'm going to be hung out to dry, thought Moist, as Drumnot started speaking. What is Vetinari playing at? He stared at the crowds as Drumnot went through the tedious litany of accountancy. Right in front, in a great black mass, was the lavish family. From here they looked like vultures. This was going to take a long time by the sound of Drumnot's earnest drone. They were going to set him up, and Vetinari was... Ah, yes, and then it would be in some quiet room. Mr. Lipvig, if you could see your way clear to telling me how you controlled those golems. A commotion near the door came as a welcome respite, and now Sergeant Fred Colon, trailed by his inseparable associate Nobby Nobbs, was practically swimming through the crowd. Vimes pushed his way toward them, with Sacharissa drifting in his wake. 
there was a hurried conversation, and a ripple of horrified excitement rolled through the crowd. Moist caught the word, murdered. Vetinari stood up and brought his stick down flat on the table, ending the noise like the punctuation of the gods. What has happened, Commander? he said. Bodies, sir, in Mr. Bent's lodgings. He's been murdered? No, sir. Vimes conferred briefly and urgently with his sergeant. Body provisionally identified as Professor Cranberry, sir. Not a real professor. He's a nasty hired killer who likes reading. We thought he'd left the city. Sounds like the other one is Ribcage Jack, who was kicked to death. There was another whispered briefing, but Commander Vimes tended to raise his voice when he was angry. By a what? On a second floor? Don't be daft. So what got Cranberry? Eh? Did you just say what I thought you said? He straightened up. Sorry, sir. I'm going to have to go and see this for myself. I think someone is having a jape. And poor Bent, said Betanari. No sign of him, sir. Thank you, Commander. Betanari waved a hand. Do hurry back when you know more. We cannot have japes. Thank you, Drumnot. I gather you found nothing untoward apart from the lack of gold. I'm sure that comes as a relief to us all. The floor is yours, Mr. Slant. The lawyer arose with an air of dignity and mothballs. Tell me, Mr. Lifwick, what was your job before you came to Ank Morpork? he said. Okay, thought Moist, looking at Vetinari. I've worked it out. If I'm good and say the right things, I might live. At a price. Well, no thanks. All I wanted to do was make some money. Your job, Mr. Lipvig, Slant repeated. Moist looked along the rows of watchers and saw the face of Cribbins. The man winked. Hmm, he said. I asked you what your job was before you arrived in this city. It was at this point that Moist became aware of a regrettably familiar whirring sound, and from his raised position he was the first to see the chairman of the Royal Bank appear from behind the curtains at the far end of the hall with his wonderful new toy clamped firmly in his mouth. Some trick of the vibrations was propelling Mr. Fusspot backward across the shiny marble. People in the audience craned their necks as, with tail wagging, the little dog passed behind Vetinari's chair and disappeared behind the curtains on the opposite side. I'm in a world where that just happened, Moist thought. Nothing matters. It was a thought of incredibly wonderful liberation. Mr. Lifvig, I asked you a question, Slant growled. Oh, sorry. I was a crook. And he flew. This was it. This was better than hanging off some old building. Look at the expression on Cosmo's face. Look at Cribbins. They had it all planned out, and now it had got away from them. He had them all in his hand, and he was flying. Slant hesitated. By a uh, crook, you mean confidence trickster? Occasional forgery? I'd like to think I was more of a scallywag, to be frank. Moist saw the looks that passed between Cosmo and Cribbins, and exulted within. No, this wasn't supposed to happen, was it? And now you're going to have to run to keep up. Mr. Slant was certainly having trouble in that area. C can I be clear here? You broke the law for a living? Mostly I took advantage of other people's greed, Mr. Slant. I think there was an element of education, too. Mr. Slant shook his head in amazement, causing an earwig to fall with a keen sense of the appropriate out of his ear. Education? he said. Yes, a lot of people learned that no one sells a real diamond ring for one-tenth of its value. And then you 
stepped into one of the highest public offices in the city, said Mr. Slant, above the laughter. It was a release. People had been holding their breath for too long. I had to. It was that or be hanged, said Moist, and added, Again? Mr. Slant looked flustered and turned his eyes to Vetinari. Are you sure you wish me to continue, my lord? Oh, yes, said Vetinari. To the death, Mr. Slant. Uh, you have been hanged before, Slant said to Moist. Oh, yes. I did not wish it to become a habit. That got another laugh. Mr. Slant turned again to Vetinari, who was smiling faintly. Is this true, my lord? Indeed, said Vetinari calmly. Mr. Lipvig was hanged last year under the name of Albert Spangler, but it turned out that he had a very tough neck, as was found when he was being placed in his coffin. You may be aware, Mr. Slant, of the ancient principle quia ego sic dico. A man who survives being hanged may have been selected by the gods for a different destiny as yet unfulfilled, and since fortune had favoured him, I resolved to put him on parole and charge him with resurrecting the post-office, a task which had already taken the lives of four of my clerks. If he succeeded, well and good. If he failed, the city would have been spared the cost of another hanging. It was a cruel joke which, I am happy to say, rebounded to the general good. I don't think that anyone here would argue that the post-office is now a veritable jewel of the city. Indeed, the leopard can change his shorts. Mr. Slant nodded automatically, remembered himself, and fumbled with his notes. He had lost his place. And uh, now we come to the uh, matter of the bank. Mrs. Lavish, a lady many of us were privileged to know, recently confided in me that she was dying, said Vetinari. She asked me for advice on the future of the bank, given that her obvious heirs were, in her words, as nasty a bunch of weasels as you could ever hope not to meet. All thirty-one of the lavish lawyers stood up and spoke at once, incurring a total cost to their clients of one hundred and nineteen Ankh-Morpork dollars twenty-eight p. Mr. Slant glared at them. Mr. Slant did not, despite what had been said, have the respect of Ankh-Morpork's legal profession. He commanded its fear. Death had not diminished his encyclopedic memory, his guile, his talent for corkscrew reasoning, and the vitriol of his stare. Do not cross me this day, it advised the lawyers. Do not cross me, for if you do I will have the flesh from your very bones and the marrow therein. You know those leather-bound tomes you have on the wall behind your desk to impress your clients? I have read them all, and I wrote half of them. Do not try me. I am not in a good mood. One by one, they sat down. Total cost, including time and disbursements, two hundred and fifty-three Ankh-Morpork dollars, sixteen pence. If I may continue, said Vetinari, I understand that Mrs. Lavish subsequently interviewed Mr. Lipvig and considered that he would be a superb chairman in the very best traditions of the Lavish family, and the ideal guardian for the dog Mr. Fusspot, who is, by the custom of the bank, its chairman. Cosmo rose slowly to his feet and stepped out into the centre of the floor. I object most strongly to the suggestion that this scoundrel is in the best traditions of my— he began. Mr. Slant was on his feet as though propelled by a spring. Quick as he was, Moist was faster. I object, he said. How do you dare object, Cosmo spat, when you have admitted to being an arrogant scofflaw? I object 
to Lord Vetinari's allegation that I have had anything to do with the fine traditions of the lavish family, said Moist, staring into eyes that now seemed to be weeping green tears. For example, I have never been a pirate or traded in slaves. There was a great rising of lawyers. Mr. Slant glared. There was a great seating. They admit it, said Moist. It's in the bank's own official history. That is correct, Mr. Slant, said Vetinari. I have read it. Valenti known fit injuria clearly applies. The whirring started again. Mr. Fusspot was coming back the other way. Moist forced himself not to look. Oh, this is low indeed, snarled Cosmo. Whose history could withstand this type of malice? Moist raised a hand. Oh, oh, I know this one, he said. Mine can. The worst I ever did was rob people who thought they were robbing me. But I never used violence, and I gave it all back. Okay, I robbed a couple of banks. Well, defrauded, really, but only because they made it so easy. Gave it back, said Slant, looking for some kind of response from Vetinari. But the patrician was staring over the heads of the crowd, who were almost all engrossed in the transit of Mr. Fusspot, and merely raised a finger in either acknowledgement or dismissal. Yes, you may recall that I saw the error of my ways last year when the gods, Moist began, robbed a couple of banks, said Cosmo. Vetinari, are we to believe that you knowingly put the most important bank in the city into the charge of a known bank robber? The mass ranks of the lavishes arose, united in the defence of the money. Vetinari still stared at the ceiling. Moist looked up. A disc, something white, skimmed through the air near the ceiling, descended as it circled, and hit Cosmo between the eyes. A second one swooped on over the head of Moist and landed in the bosoms of the lavishes. Should he have left it in the hands of unknown bank robbers? A voice shouted as collateral custard landed on every smart black suit. Here we are again. A second wave of pies was already in the air, circling the room in trajectories that dropped them into the struggling lavishes. And then a figure fought its way out of the crowd to the groans and screams of those who'd temporarily been in its way. This was because those who managed to escape having their feet trodden on by the big shoes jumped back in time to be scythed down by the ladder the newcomer was carrying. Then he'd innocently turned to see what mayhem he had caused, and the swinging ladder would fell anyone too slow to get away. There was a method to it, though. As Moist watched, the clown stepped away from the ladder, leaving four people trapped among the rungs in such a way that any attempt to get out would cause huge pain to the other three, and... In the case of one of the watchmen, a serious impairment of marriage prospects. Red-nosed and raggedy-hatted, he bounced into the arena in great leaping strides, his enormous boots flapping on the floor with every familiar step. Mr. Bent, said Moist, is that you? My jolly good pal, Mr. Lipbig, shouted the clown. You think the ringmaster runs the circus to you? Only by the consent of the clowns, Mr. Lipbig, only by consent of the clowns. Bent drew back his arm and hurled a pie at Lord Vetinari, but Moist was already in full leap before the pie started its journey. His brain came a poor third and delivered its thoughts all in one go, telling him what his legs had apparently worked out for themselves, that the dignity of the great could rarely survive a faceful of custard, that a picture of an encustarded patrician on the front page of the Times would rock the power politics of the city, and most of all, that in a post-veterinary world he, Moist, would not see tomorrow, which was one of his lifelong ambitions. As in a silent dream, he sailed toward the oncoming nemesis, reaching out with snail-pace fingers while the pie spun onto its date with history.
It hit him in the face. Vetinari had not moved. Custard flew up, and four hundred fascinated eyes watched as a glob of the stuff was thrown up by the collision and headed on toward Vetinari, who ducked and caught it in an upraised hand. The little smack as it landed in his palm was the only sound in the room. Vetinari straightened up and inspected the captured custard. He dipped a finger into it and tasted the blob thereon. He cast his eyes upward thoughtfully while the room held its collective breath and then said, I do believe it is pineapple. There was a thunder of applause. There had to be. Even if you hated Vetinari, you had to admire the timing. But it faded fast because now he was coming down the steps, advancing on a frozen and fearful clown. "'The clowns do not run my circus, sir,' he said, grabbing the man by his big red nose and pulling it to the full extent of the elastic. "'Is that understood?' The clown produced a bulbous horn and gave a mournful honk. "'Good. I'm glad you agree. And now I want to talk to Mr. Bent, please.' There were two honks this time. "'Oh, yes, he is,' said Vetinari. "'Shall we get him out for the boys and girls?' What is fifteen point three per cent of fifty nine point six six? You leave him alone, just you leave him alone. The battered crowd parted yet again, this time for a dishevelled Miss Drapes, as outraged and indignant as a mother hen. She was clasping something heavy to her sparse bosom, and Moist realised that it was a stack of ledgers. This is what it's all about, she announced triumphantly, flinging her arms wide. It's not his fault. They took advantage of him. She pointed an accusatory finger at the dripping ranks of the lavishes. If a battle goddess was allowed to have a respectable blouse and hair escaping rapidly from a tight bun, then Miss Drapes could have been deified. It was them. They sold the gold years ago. This caused a general and enthusiastic uproar on all sides not containing a lavish. There will be silence shouted Vetinari. The lawyers rose. Mr. Slant glared. The lawyers sank. And Moist wiped pineapple custard from his eyes just in time. Look out! He's got a daisy! he shouted, and then thought, I just shouted, look out, he's got a daisy, and I think I'm going to remember forever just how embarrassing this was. Lord Vetinari looked down at the improbably large flower in the clown's buttonhole. A tiny drop of water glistened in the almost well-concealed nozzle. Yes, he said, I know. Now, sir, I do indeed believe you are Mr. Bent. I recognise the walk, you see. If you are not, then all you have to do is squeeze, and all I have to do is let go. I repeat, I'd like to hear from Mr. Bent. Sometimes the gods don't have the right sense of occasion, Moist thought. There should be thunder, a plangent tone, a chord of tension, some kind of celestial acknowledgement that here was the moment of truth. Nine point one two seven nine eight, said the clown. Vetinari smiled and patted him on the shoulder. Welcome back, he said, and looked around the room until his gaze found Dr. Whiteface of the Fool's Guild. Doctor, would you take care of Mr. Bent, please? I think he needs to be among his own. It would be an honour, my lord. Seven pies in the air at once, and a four-man ladder tie, exemplary. Whoever you are, brother, I offer you the joke handshake of welcome. He's not going anywhere without me, said Miss Drapes grimly, as the white-faced clown stepped forward. Indeed, who could imagine how he would, said Vetinari. 
"'And please extend the courtesy of your guild to Mr. Bent's young lady, doctor,' he added, to the surprise and delight of Miss Drapes, who clung on daily to the lady, but had reluctantly said goodbye to the young years ago. "'And will somebody please release those people from that ladder? I think a saw will be required,' Vetinari went on. "'Drum not. Collect up these intriguing new ledgers that Miss Drapes has so kindly supplied, and I think Mr. Lavish needs medical attention.' "'I do not!' Cosmo, dripping custard, was trying to remain upright. It was painful to watch. He managed to point a furious but wavering finger at the tumbled books. Those, he declared, are the property of the bank. Mr. Lavish, it is clear to us all that you are ill, Vetinari began. Yes, you'd like everyone to believe that, wouldn't you? Imposter, Cosmo said, visibly swaying. The Royal Bank of Ankh-Morpork, said Vetinari, without taking his eyes off Cosmo. Prides itself on its red leather ledgers, which, without fail, are embossed with the seal of the city in gold leaf. Drumnod? These are cheap cardboard band ones, sir. You can buy them anywhere. The writing within, however, is the unmistakable fine copperplate hand of Mr. Bent. You are sure? Oh, yes, he does a wonderful cursive script. Fake! said Cosmo, as if his tongue was an inch thick. All fake! Stolen! Moist looked at the watching people and saw the shared expression. Whatever you thought of him, it was not good to see a man fall to bits where he stood. A couple of watchmen were sidling carefully toward him. "'I never stole a thing in my life,' said Miss Drapes, bridling enough for a gymkhana. "'They were in his wardrobe,' she hesitated and decided she'd rather be scarlet than grey. "'And I don't care what Lady Deidre Wagon thinks. And I've taken a look inside them, too.' You took the gold and sold it, and you forced him to hide it in the numbers. And that's not the half of it. Beautiful butterfly, Cosmo slurred, blinking at Vetinari. You not me any more. Walked mile in your shoes. Moist also edged in his direction. Cosmo had the look of someone who might explode at any moment, or collapse, or just possibly fall on Moist's neck, mumbling things like, you're my bestest pal, you are. It's you and me against our world, pal. Greenish sweat was pouring down the man's face. I think you need to lie down, Mr. Lavish, said Moist cheerfully. Cosmo tried to focus on him. It's a good pain, the dripping man confided. Got little hat, got, got sword of thousand men's. And with a whisper of steel, a grey blade, with an evil red glitter to it, was pointing between Moist's eyes. It didn't waver. Behind it, Cosmo was trembling and twitching, but the sword stayed rigid and unmoving. The advancing watchman slowed down a little. "'Will no one at all make any move, please? I think I can deal with this,' said Moist, squinting along the blade. This was a time for delicacy. "'Oh, this is so silly,' said Pucci, strutting forward with a clatter of heels. "'We've got nothing to be ashamed of. It's our gold, isn't it? Who cares what he wrote down in his books?' The phalanx of lavish lawyers rose very cautiously to their feet, while the two employed by Pucci began to whisper urgently to her. She ignored them. Everyone was staring at her now, not her brother. Everyone was paying attention to her. "'Could you please be quiet, Miss Lavish?' said Moist. The stillness of the blade worried him. Some part of Cosmo was functioning very well indeed. "'Oh, yes, I expect you just would like me to shut up, and I'm not going to,' said Pucci gleefully. Like Moist, confronted by an open notebook, she triumphantly plunged on without a care. "'We can't steal what already belongs to us, can we? So what if father put the wretched girl to better use? It was just sitting there. 
Honestly, why are you all so dense? Everybody does it. It's not stealing. I mean, the gold still exists, yes? In rings and things. It's not as though anyone's going to throw it away. Who cares what it is? Moist resisted the impulse to look at the other bankers in the room. Everyone does it, eh? Coochie was not going to get many Hogswatch cards this year, and her brother was staring at her in horror. The rest of the clan, those who weren't still engrossed in de-custoding themselves, were contriving to give the impression that they had never seen Poochie before. "'Who is this mad woman?' said their faces. "'Who let her in? What is she talking about?' "'I think your brother is very ill, miss,' he said. Poochie tossed her admittedly fine locks dismissively. "'Don't worry about him. He's just being silly,' she said. "'He's only doing it to attract attention. Silly boyish stuff about wanting to be veterinary, as if anyone in their right mind would—' "'He's dribbling green,' said Moist, but nothing cut through the barrage of chatter. He stared at Cosmo's ravaged face, and everything made sense. Beard? Cap? Swordstick, yes, with someone's tacky idea of what a blade made from the iron of the blood of a thousand men should look like. But what about the murder of a man who made rings? And under that stinking glove? Now, this is my world. I know how to do this. I beg your pardon? You are Lord Vetinari, aren't you? he said. For a moment, Cosmo drew himself up, and a spark of imperiousness shone through. Indeed! Yes, indeed! he said, raising one eyebrow. Then it sagged, and his puffy face sagged with it. Got ring! Veterinary ring! he mumbled. Smine, really! Good pain! The sword dropped, too. Moist grabbed the man's left hand and tore the glove off. It came away with a sucking sound and a smell that was unimaginably nose-cakingly bad, the nearest guard threw up. So many colours, thought Moist, so many wiggling things. And there, still visible in the suppurating mass, was the unmistakable sullen gleam of Stygium. Moist grabbed Cosmo's other hand. I think you ought to come outside, my lord. Now you are the patrician, he said loudly. You must meet the people. Once again, some inner Cosmo got a slippery grip, enough to cause the dribbling mouth to utter, Yes, this is very important, before reverting to, Feel ill. Finger looks funny. The sunshine will do it good, said Moist, taking him gently in tow. Trust me. Chapter 13 Gladys is doing it for herself. To the House of Mirth. The history of Mr. Bent. The usefulness of clowns as nurses is questioned. Owlswick gets an angel. The golden secret, not exactly dragon magic. The return of the teeth. Betanari looks ahead. The bank triumphant. The glooper's little gift. How to spoil a perfect day. On the first day of the rest of his life, Moist von Lipwig woke up, which was nice, given that on any particular day a number of people do not, but woke up alone, which was less pleasing. It was 6 a.m., and the fog seemed glued to the windows, so thick that it could have contained croutons. But he liked these moments, before the fragments of yesterday reassembled themselves. Hold on, this wasn't the suite, was it? This was his room in the post office, which had all the luxury and comfort that you would normally associate with the term civil service issue. A piece of yesterday fell into place. Oh, yes, Vetinari had ordered the bank shut while his clerks looked at everything this time. Moist wished them luck with the late Sir Joshua's special cupboard. There was no Mr. Fusspot, which was a shame. You don't appreciate an early morning slobber until it's gone. And there was no Gladys, either. 
which was worrying. She didn't turn up while he was getting dressed, either, and there was no copy of the Times on his desk. His suit needed pressing, too. He eventually found her pushing a trolley of mail in the sorting room. The blue dress was gone, to be replaced by a grey one, which, by the nascent standards of golem dressmaking, looked quite smart. "'Good morning, Gladys,' Moist ventured. "'Any chance of some pressed trouser?' "'There is always a warm iron in the postman's locker room, Mr. Lipvig.' "'Oh, ah, right. "'And, uh, the Times?' Four copies are delivered to Mr. Groat's office every morning, Mr. Lipvig. "'I suppose a sandwich is totally out of—' "'I really must get on with my duties, Mr. Lipvig,' said the golem reproachfully. "'You know, Gladys, I can't help thinking that there's something different about you,' said Moist. "'Yes, I am doing it for myself,' said Gladys, her eyes glowing. "'Doing what, exactly?' "'I have not ascertained this yet, but I am only ten pages into the book.' "'Ah, you have been reading a new book, but not one by Lady Deirdre Wagon, I'll wager. No, because she is out of touch with modern thought, I laugh with scorn.' "'Yes, I imagine you would do,' said Moist thoughtfully. "'And I expect Miss Dearheart gave you said book. Yes, it is entitled Why Men Get Under Your Feet by Releventure Flout,' said Gladys earnestly. "'And we start out with the best of intentions,' thought Moist. Find em out, dig em up, make em free. But we don't know what we're doing, or what we're doing it to. Gladys, the thing about books... Well, the thing... I mean, just because it's written down, you don't have to... That is to say, it doesn't mean it's... What I'm getting at is that every book is... He stopped. They believe in words. Words give them life. I can't tell her that we just throw them around like jugglers. We change their meaning to suit ourselves. He patted Gladys on the shoulder. Well, read them all and make up your own mind, eh? That was very nearly inappropriate touching Mr. Lipvig. Moist started to laugh and stopped at the sight of her grave expression. Um, only for Miss Flout, I expect, he said, and went to grab a times before they were all stolen. It must have been another bittersweet day for the editor. After all, there can only be one page one. In the end, he'd stuffed in everything. I do believe it is a pineapple line, with a picture showing the dripping lavishes in the background, and, oh yes, it was Pooch's speech in detail. It was wonderful. And she'd gone on and on. It was all perfectly clear from her point of view. She was right, and everyone was silly. She was so in love with her own voice that the watchman had to write down their official caution on a piece of paper and hold it up in front of her before they towed her away, still talking. And someone had got a picture of Cosmo's ring catching the sunlight. It was near-perfect surgery, they said, down at the hospital, and had probably saved his life, they said, and how had Moist known what to do, they said, when the entirety of Moist's relevant medical knowledge was that a finger shouldn't have green mushrooms growing on it. The paper was twitched out of his hands. "'What have you done with Professor Fleed?' a Bell demanded. "'I know you've done something. Don't lie.' "'I haven't done anything,' Moist protested, and checked the wording. "'Yes, technically true.' I've been to the Department of Postmortem Communications, you know. And what did they say? I don't know. There was a squid blocking the door. But you've done something, I know it. He told you the secret of getting through the golems, didn't he? No. Absolutely true. He didn't? No. I got some extra vocabulary, but that's no secret. Will it work for me? No. They'd only take orders from a man. I bet that's it. I don't think so. True enough. So there is a secret. 
It's not really a secret, Fleeds told us. He just didn't know it was a secret. True. It's a word. No. True. Look, why won't you tell me? You know you can trust me. Well, yes, of course, but can I trust you if someone holds a knife to your throat? Why should they do that? Moist sighed. Because you'll know how to command the biggest army there has ever been. Didn't you look around outside? Didn't you see all the coppers? What coppers? Those trolls relaying the cobbles? How often do you see that happening? The line of cabs that aren't interested in passengers? The battalion of beggars? And the coachyard around the back is full of hangers-on lounging about and watching the windows. Those coppers! It's called a stakeout, and I'm the meat. There was a knock at the door. Moist recognised it. It sought to alert without disturbing. Come in, Stanley, he said. The door opened. Ah, it's me, sir, said Stanley, who went through life with the care of a man reading a manual translated from a foreign language. Yes, Stanley. Head of stamps, sir, said Stanley. Yes, Stanley. Lord Vetinari is in the coach yard, sir, inspecting the new automatic pickup mechanism. He says there is no rush, sir. He says there is no rush, said Moist to Dora Bell. We'd better hurry, then. Exactly. Remarkably like a gibbet, said Lord Vetinari, while behind him coaches rumbled in and out of the fog. It will allow a fast coach to pick up mailbags without slowing, said Moist. That means letters going from small country offices can travel express without slowing the coach. It could save a few minutes on a long run. And, of course, if I let you have some of the golem horses, the coaches might travel at a hundred miles an hour, I'm told. And I wonder if those glowing eyes could see even through this murk. Possibly, sir. But, in fact, I already have all the golem horses, said Moist. Vetinari gave him a cool look and then said, and you also have all your ears. What exchange rate are we discussing? Look, it's not that I want to be Lord of the Golems, Moist began. On the way, please, do join me in my coach, said Vetinari. Where are we going? Hardly any distance. We're going to see Mr. Bent. The clown, who opened the little sliding door in the Fool's Guild forbidding gates, looked from Vetinari to Moist to Dora Bell, and wasn't very happy about any of them. We are here to see Dr. Whiteface, said Vetinari. I require you to let us in with the minimum of mirth. The door snapped back. There was some hurried whispering and a clanking noise, and one half of the double doors opened a little way, just enough for people to walk through in single file. Moist stepped forward, but Vetinari put a restraining hand on his shoulder and pointed up with his stick. This is the Fool's Guild, he said. Expect fun. There was a bucket balanced on the door. He sighed and gave it a push with his stick. There was a thud and a splash from the other side. I don't know why they persist in this. I really don't, he said, sweeping through. It's not funny, and it could hurt someone. Mind the custard. There was a groan from the dark behind the door. Mr. Bent was born Charlie Benito, according to Dr. Whiteface, said Vetinari, pushing his way through the tent that occupied the guild's quadrangle. And he was born a clown. Dozens of clowns paused in their daily training to watch them pass. Pies remained unflung. Trousers did not fill with whitewash. Invisible dogs paused in mid-whiddle. Born a clown, said Moist. Indeed, Mr. Livbig, a great clown from a family of clowns who have worn the Charlie Benito make-up for centuries. You saw him last night. I thought he'd gone mad. Dr. Whiteface, on the other hand, thinks he has come to his senses. Young Bent had a terrible childhood, I gather, 
No one told him he was a clown until he was thirteen, and his mother, for reasons of her own, discouraged all clownishness in him. She must have liked clowns once, said Adorabelle. She looked around them. All the clowns hurriedly looked away. She loved clowns, said Vetinari. Or should I say one clown, and for one night? Oh, I see, said Moist. And then the circus moved on, as circuses do, alas, after which I suspect she rather went off men with red noses. How do you know all this? said Moist. Some of it is informed conjecture, but Miss Drapes has got a lot out of him in the last couple of days. She is a lady of some depth and determination. On the far side of the big tent there was another doorway where the head of the guild was waiting for them. He was white all over, white hat, white boots, white costume, and white face, and on that face, delineated in thin lines of red grease paint, was a smile belying the real face which was as cold and proud as that of a prince of hell. Dr. Whiteface nodded at Vetinari. My lord. Dr. Whiteface, said the patrician, and how is the patient? Oh, if only he had come to us when he was young, said Whiteface. What a clown he would have been. What timing. Oh, by the way, we do not normally allow women visitors into the guild, but in these special circumstances we are waiving this rule. Oh, I'm so glad, said Adorabelle, acid etching every syllable. It is simply that, whatever the jokes for women group says, women are just not funny. It's a terrible affliction, Adorabelle agreed. An interesting dichotomy, in fact, since neither are clowns, said Vetinari. I've always thought so, said Adorabelle. They are tragic, and we laugh at their tragedy as we laugh at our own. The painted grin leers out at us from the darkness, mocking our insane belief in order, logic, status, the reality of reality. The mask knows that we are born on the banana skin that leads only to the open manhole cover of doom, and all we can hope for are the cheers of the crowd. Where do these squeaky balloon animals fit in? said Moist. I have no idea, but I understand that when the would-be murderers broke in, Mr. Bent strangled one with quite a lifelike humorous pink elephant made out of balloons. Just imagine the noise, said Adorabelle. Yes, what a turn, and without any training. And the business with the ladder, pure battle clowning. Superb, said Whiteface. We know it all now, Havelock. After his mother died, his father came back, and, of course, took him off to the circus. Any clown could see the boy had funny bones. Those feet. They should have sent him to us. A boy of that age. It can be very tricky. But no. He was bundled into his grandfather's old gear and shoved out into the ring in some tiny little town, and, well, that's where clowning lost a prince. Why? What happened? said Moist. Why do you think? They laughed at him. It was raining, and wet branches lashed at him as he bounded through the woods, whitewash still dribbling from his baggy trousers. The pants themselves bounced up and down on their elastic braces, occasionally hitting him under the chin but the boots were good. They were amazing boots. They were the only ones he'd had that fitted. But Mother had brought him up properly. Clothes should be a respectable grey. Mirth was indecent, and make-up was a sin. Well, punishment had come fast enough. At dawn, he found a barn. He scraped off the dried custard and caked grease paint, and washed himself in a puddle. Oh, that face! The fat nose, the huge mouth, the white tear painted on. 
he would remember it in nightmares he knew it. At least he still had his own shirt and drawers, which covered all the important bits. He was about to throw everything else away when an inner voice stopped him. His mother was dead, and he hadn't been able to stop the bailiffs taking everything, even the brass ring mother polished every day. He'd never see his father again. He had to keep something. There had to be something. Something to remember who and why he was, and where he'd come from, and even why he'd left. The barn yielded a sack full of holes. That was good enough. Later that day he'd come across some caravans parked under the trees, but they were not the garish carts of the circus. Probably they were religious, he thought, and Mother had approved of the quieter religions, provided the gods weren't foreign. They gave him rabbit stew, and when he looked over the shoulder of a man sitting quietly at a small folding table, he saw a book full of numbers, all written down. He liked numbers. They'd always made sense in a world that didn't. And then he'd asked the man, very politely, what the number at the bottom was, and the answer had been, it's what we call the total. And he'd replied, no, that's not the total, that's three farthings short of the total. How do you know? said the man. And he'd said, I can see it is. And the man had said, but you only just glanced at it. And he'd said, well, yes. Isn't that why? And then more books were opened, and the people gathered round and gave him sums to do. And they were all so, so easy. It was all the fun the circus couldn't be, and involved no custard ever. He opened his eyes and made out the indistinct figures. Am I going to be arrested? Moist glanced at Vetinari, who waved a hand vaguely. Not necessarily, said Moist carefully. Mr. Lavish said he would let it be known about my family, said Mr. Bent. Yes, we know. People would laugh. I, I, I couldn't stand that. And then I think, I, you know, I think I convinced myself that it was all a dream, that, provided I never looked for it, it would still be there. He paused, as if random thoughts were queuing for the use of the mouth. Mr. Whiteface has been kind enough to show me the, the history of the Charlie Benito face. Another pause. I hear I threw custard pies with considerable accuracy. Perhaps my ancestor will be proud. How do you feel now? said Moist. Oh, quite well in myself, said Bent, whoever that is. Good. Then I want to see you at work at eight-thirty tomorrow, Mr. Bent. You can't ask him to go back so soon, Miss Drapes protested. Moist turned to Whiteface and Vetinari. Could you please leave us, gentlemen? There was an affronted look on the chief clown's face, which was made worse by the permanent happy smile, but the door shut behind them. Listen, Mr. Bent, said Moist urgently. We're in a mess. I believed in the gold, you know, said Bent. Didn't know where it was, but I believed. Good. And it probably still exists in Pooch's jewellery box, said Moist. But I want to open the bank again tomorrow, and Vetinari's people have been through every piece of paper in the place, and you can guess what kind of mess they leave. And I want to launch the notes tomorrow, you know? The money that doesn't need gold? And the bank doesn't need gold. We know this. It worked for years with a vault full of junk. But the bank needs you, Mr. Bent. The lavishes are in real trouble. Cosmo's locked up somewhere, Mr. Fusspot's in the palace, and tomorrow, Mr. Bent, the bank opens and you must be there, please. Oh, and the chairman has graciously barked assent to putting you on a salary of $65 a month. I know you are not a man to be influenced by money, but the raise might be worth considering by a man contemplating a uh, change in his domestic arrangements. It wasn't a shot in the dark. It was a shot in the light, clear, blazing light. Miss Drapes was definitely a woman with a plan, and it had to be a better one than the rest of her life spent in a narrow room in Elm Street. "'It's your choice, of course,' he said, standing up. 
Are they treating him all right, Miss Drapes? Only because I'm here, she said smartly. This morning, three clowns came in with a big rope and a small elephant and wanted to pull one of his poor teeth. And then I'd hardly got them out when two more came in and started to whitewash the room, very inefficiently, in my opinion. I got them out of here in very short order, I can tell you. Well done, Miss Drapes. Vetinari was waiting outside the guild with the coach door open and, Moist noted with relief, Mr. Fusspot asleep on the cushions. You will get in, Vetinari said. You too, Miss Dearheart. Actually, it's a very short walk to get in, Mr. Lipvig. We will go the pretty way. I believe you think our relationship is a game, said Vetinari, as the coach pulled away. You believe that all sins will be forgiven. So let me give you this. He pulled out a black walking stick with a silver skull on the handle and tugged at the handle. This curious thing was in the possession of Cosmo Lavish, he said as the blade slid out. I know. Isn't it a replica of yours? said Moist. Oh, really? said Vetinari. Am I a sword made of the blood of a thousand men kind of ruler? It'll be a crown of skulls next, I suppose. I believe Cosmo had it made. So it's a replica of a rumour, said Adorabelle. Outside the coach, some gates were swung open. Indeed, said Vetinari. A copy of something that does not exist. One can only assume that it is authentic in every respect. The coach door was opened, and Moist and Adorabelle stepped down into the palace gardens. They had the usual look of such places. Neat, tidy, lots of gravel and pointy trees and no vegetables. Why are we here? said Adorabelle. It's about the golems, isn't it? Miss Dearheart, what do our local golems think about this new army? They don't like them. They think they will cause trouble. They have no chem that can be changed. They're worse than zombies. Thank you. A further question. Will they kill? Historically, golem makers have learned not to make golems that kill. Is that a no? I don't know. We make progress. Is it possible to give them an order which cannot be countermanded by another person? Well, er, yes. If they don't know the wretched secret. Which is? Vetinari turned back to Moist and drew the sword. It must be the way I give the orders, sir, said Moist, squinting downward at the blade for the second time. It really did glint. He was braced for what happened, except that it happened in entirely the wrong way. Vetinari handed him the sword and said, Miss Dearheart, I really wish you would not leave the city for long periods. It makes this man seek danger. Tell us the secret, Mr. Lipvig. I think it could be too dangerous, sir. Mr. Lipvig, do I need a button that says tyrant? Can I make a bargain? Of course. I am a reasonable man. Will you keep to it? No, but I will make a different bargain. The post office can have six golem horses. The other golem warriors will be considered wards of the golem trust, but the use of four hundred of them to improve the operation of the clax system will, I am sure, meet with international approval. We will replace gold with golems as a basis for our currency, as you have so eloquently pleaded. The two of you have made the international situation very interesting. Sorry, why is it me that's holding this sword? said Moist. And you tell us the secret, and best of all, you live, Vetinari finished. And who is going to give you a better offer? Oh, all right, said Moist. I knew this would have to happen. 
The golems obey me because you wear a golden suit, and therefore in their eyes must be an Umnian priest, said Vetinari. Because, for an order to be fully realized, the right person must say the right words to the right recipient. I used to be quite a scholar. It's a matter of reasoning. Do not continue to stand there with your mouth open. You already knew. It wasn't exactly dragon magic. So why did you give me this horrible sword? It is tasteless, isn't it? said Vetinari, taking it from him. One might imagine it belonging to someone with a name like Cracks the Mighty. I was just interested to see that you were more fearful when you were holding it. You really are not a violent man, are you? That wasn't necessary, said Moist. Adorabelle was grinning. Mr. Lipvig, Mr. Lipvig, Mr. Lipvig, will you never learn, said Vetinari, sheathing the sword. One of my predecessors used to have people torn apart by wild tortoises. It was not a quick death. He thought it was a hoot. Forgive me if my pleasures are a little more cerebral, will you? Let me see now what was the other thing. Oh, yes, I regret to tell you that a man called Owlswick Clamp has died. There was something about the way he said it. Did an angel call him? said Moist. Very likely, Mr. Lipvig. But should you find yourself in need of more designs— I'm sure I can find someone in the palace to assist. It was meant to be, I'm sure, said Moist. I'm glad he's gone to a better place. Less damp, certainly. Go now. My coach is at your disposal. You have a bank to open. The world spins on, and this morning it is spinning on my desk. Follow me, Mr. Fusspot. Can I make a suggestion that might help, said Moist, as Vetinari turned away. What is it? Well, why don't you tell all the other plains governments about the golden secret. That would mean no one could use them as soldiers. That would take the pressure off. Hmm, interesting. And would you agree with that, Miss Dearheart? Yes, we don't want golem armies. It's a very good idea. Vetinari reached down and gave Mr. Fusspot a dog biscuit. When he straightened up, there was an almost imperceptible change in his expression. You've already done it, haven't you, Moist said. Vetinari did not appear to have heard. At ten o'clock last night, some person or persons unknown sent the golden secrets across the plains and even as far as Diamond King of the Trolls, he said. I trust it was not you. I understand that the person or persons used codes known only to the relevant embassies. There is huge embarrassment all round. Your silence would be appreciated and remarkably sensible. Moist and Adorabelle looked at one another. Their glances agreed. It's him. Of course it's him. Downey and all the rest of them will know it's him. Things that live on damp walls will know it's him. And no one will ever prove it. Moist's thoughts added. He's probably got our signed confessions in his pocket right now, just in case. Owlswick's probably as busy as a bee and as happy as a pig in muck. Still, it could be worse. Better the devil who knows you. You can trust us, he said. Yes, I know, said Vetinari. Come, Mr. Fusspot, there may be cake. Moist didn't fancy another ride in the coach. Coaches carried some unpleasant associations right now. He's one, hasn't he? said Adorabelle as the fog billowed around them. Well, he's got the chairman eating out of his hand. Is he allowed to do that? I think that comes under the quia ego sic dico rule. Yes, what did that mean? 
Because I say so, I think. That doesn't sound like much of a rule. Actually, it's the only one he needs. All in all, he could be, You owe me five grand, Mr. Spangler. The figure was out of the gloom and behind a Dorabelle in one movement. No tricks, miss, on account of this knife, said Cribbins, and Moist heard a Dorabelle's sharp intake of breath. Your chum promised it to me for peaching you, and since you peached yourself and sent him to the loony house, I reckon you owe me, right? Moist's slowly moving hand found his pocket, but it was bereft of aid. The Tanty didn't like you to bring blackjacks and lockpicks in with you and expected you to buy such things from the wardens like everyone else. Put the knife away and we can talk, he said. Oh yeah, talk, you like talking, you do. You've got a magic tongue, you have, I've seen you. You flap it about and you're the golden boy. You tell them you're going to rob them and they laugh. How did you get away with that, eh? Cribbins was champing and spitting with rage. Angry people make mistakes, but that's no comfort when they're holding a knife a few inches from your girlfriend's kidneys. She'd gone pale, and Moist had to hope that she'd worked out this was no time to stamp her foot. Above all, he had to stop himself from looking over Cribbins's shoulder, because in the edge of his vision he was sure someone was creeping up. "'This is no time for rash moves,' he said loudly. The shadow in the fog appeared to halt. "'Cribbins, this is why you never made it,' Moist went on. "'I mean, do you expect me to have that much money on me?' Plenty of places round here for us to be cosy while we wait, eh? Dumb, thought Moist. Dumb, but dangerous. And a thought said, it's brain against brain, and a weapon he doesn't know how to use belongs to you. Push him. Just back away and we'll forget we saw you, he said. That's the best offer you're going to get. You're going to try to talk your way out of this, you schmarmy bastard. I'm going to... There was a muffled twang, and Cribbins made a noise. It was the sound of someone trying to scream, except that even screaming was too painful. Moist grabbed a Dorabelle as the man bent double, clutching at his mouth. There was another twang, and blood appeared on Cribbins's cheek, causing him to whimper and roll up into a ball. Even then, there were more twangs as a dead man's dentures, mistreated and ill-used over the years, finally gave up the ghost, who made a determined effort to take the hated Cribbins with him. Later on, the doctor said one spring almost made it into a sinus. Captain Carrot and Nobby Nobs ran out of the fog and stared down at the man who twitched now and again with a ping. "'Sorry, sir, we lost you in the muck,' said Carrot. "'What happened to him?' Moist held Adorabelle tightly. "'His dentures exploded,' he said. "'How could that happen, sir?' "'I have no idea, Captain. Why not do a good deed and get him to the hospital?' "'Will you want to press charges, Mr Lipvig?' Carrot said, lifting the whimpering cribbins with some care. "'I'd prefer a brandy,' said Moist. He thought. Perhaps Anoya was just awaiting her moment. I'd better go to her temple and hang up a big, big ladle. It may not be a good idea to be ungrateful. Secretary Drumnot tiptoed into Lord Vetinari's office on velvet-shod feet. Good morning, said his lordship, turning away from the window. The fog has a very pleasing tint of yellow this morning. Any news about heretofore? At the watch in Querm are searching for him, sir, said Drumnot, putting the city edition of the Times in front of him. Why? He bought a ticket for Querm. But he will have bought another one from the coachman for Genua. He will run as far as he can. Send a short clax to our man there, will you? I hope you are right, sir. Do you? I hope I am wrong. It will be good for me. Ha! 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 Sir? I see the Times has put colour on the front page again. The front and back of the one-dollar note. Yes, sir, very nice. 
actual size too, said Vetinari, still smiling. I see here that this is to familiarize people with the look of the things. Even now, Drumnot, even now, honest citizens are carefully cutting out both sides of this note and gluing them together. Shall I have a word with the editor, sir? Don't. It will be more entertaining to let things take their course. Vetinari leaned back in his chair and shut his eyes with a sigh. Very well, Drumnot. I feel strong enough now to hear what the political cartoon looks like. There was a crackle of paper as Drumnot found the right page. Well, there is a very good likeness of Mr. Fusspot. Under Vetinari's chair the dog opened his eyes at the sound of his name. So did his new master, with more urgency. Surely he has nothing in his mouth. No, sir, it is empty, said Drumnot calmly. This is the Times of Ankh-Morpork, sir. Vetinari relaxed again. Continue. He is on a leash, sir, and looking unaccustomedly ferocious. You are holding the leash, sir. In front of him, and backing nervously into a corner, are a group of very fat cats. They are wearing top hats, sir. As cats do, yes, Vetinari nodded. And they have the words, The Banks, on them, Drumnot added. Subtle indeed. While you, sir, are waving a handful of paper money at them, and the speech bubble says, Don't tell me. This does not taste of pineapple. Well done, sir. Incidentally, it does so happen that the chairman of the rest of the city banks wish to see you at your convenience. Good. This afternoon, then. Vetinari got up and walked over to the window. The fog was thinning, but its drifting cloud still obscured the city. Mr. Lipvig is a very popular young man, is he not, Drumnot? said Vetinari, staring into the gloom. Oh, yes, sir said the secretary, folding up the newspaper. Extremely so. The Times likes him. The people seem to like him. He is an entertainer, and much is forgiven of such people. And very confident in himself, I think. I would say so. And loyal? He took a pie for you, sir. A tactical thinker at speed, then? Oh, yes. Bearing in mind his own future was riding on the pie as well. He is certainly sensitive to political currents, no doubt about it, said Drumnot picking up his bundle of files. And, as you say, popular, said Vetinari, still a gaunt outline against the fog. Drumnot waited. Moist was not the only one sensitive to political currents. An asset to the city indeed, said Vetinari, after a while. And we should not waste him. Obviously, though, he should be at the Royal Bank long enough to bend it to his satisfaction, Vetinari mused. Drumnot said nothing, but arranged some of the files into a more pleasing order. A name struck him, and he shifted a file to the top. Of course, then he will get restless again and become a danger to others as well as himself. Drumnot smiled at his files. His hand hovered. Apropos of nothing, how old is Mr. Creaser? The taxmaster in his seventies, sir, said Drumnot, opening the file he had just selected. Yes, seventy-four, it says here. We have recently pondered his methods, have we not? Indeed we have, sir, last week. Not a man with a flexible cast of mind, I feel, a little at sea in the modern world. Holding someone upside down over a bucket and giving them a good shaking is not the way forward. I won't blame him when he decides to take an honourable and well-earned retirement. Yes, sir. When would you like him to decide that, sir? said Drumnot. No rush, said Vetinari. No rush. Have you given any thought to his successor? 
It's not a job that creates friends, said Drumlot. It would need a special sort of person. I shall ponder it, said Vetinari. No doubt a name will present itself. The bank staff were at work early, pushing through the crowds who were filling the street because, A, this was another act in the wonderful street theatre that was Ankh-Morpork, and, B, there was going to be big trouble if their money had gone missing. There was, however, no sign of Mr. Bent or Miss Drapes. Moist was in the mint. Mr. Spools's men had, well, they'd done their best. It's an apologetic phrase, commonly used to mean that the result is just one step above mediocre, but their best was one leap above superb. I'm sure we can improve them, said Mr. Spools, as Moist gloated. They are perfect, Mr. Spools. Anything but. But it's kind of you to say so. We've done seventy thousand so far. Nothing like enough. With respect, we are not printing a newspaper here, but we're getting better. You have talked about other denominations? Oh, yes. Two, five, and ten dollars to start with, and the fives and tens will talk. Nothing like enough, he thought, as the colours of money flowed through his fingers. People will queue up for this. They won't want the grubby, heavy coins, not when they see this. Backed by golems. What is a coin compared to the hand that holds it? That's worth. That's value. Hmm. Yes, that'd look good on the two-dollar note, too. I better remember that. The money will talk, said Mr. Spools carefully. Imps, said Moist. They're only a sort of intelligent spell. They don't even have to have a shape. We'll print them on the high denominations. Do you think the university will agree to that? said Spools. Yes, because I'm going to put Rid Cully's head on the five-dollar note. I'll go and talk to Ponder Stibbons. This looks like a job for inadvisedly applied magic if ever I saw one. But what would the money say? Anything we want it to. Is your purchase really necessary, perhaps? Or why not save me for a rainy day? The possibilities are endless. He usually says goodbye to me, said a printer, to ritual amusement. Well, maybe we can make it blow you a kiss as well, said Moist. He turned to the men of the sheds, who were beaming and gleaming with newfound importance. Now, if some of you gentlemen will help me carry this lot into the bank. The hands of the clock were chasing one another to the top of the hour when Moist arrived at the head of the procession, and there was still no sign of Mr. Bent. Is that clock right? said Moist, as the hands began the relaxing stroll to the half hour. Oh, yes, sir, said a counter clock. Mr. Bent sets it twice a day. Maybe, but he hasn't been here for more than. The doors swung open, and there he was. Moist had, for some reason, expected the clown outfit, but this was the smooth and shiny, ironed and his clothes bent with a smart jacket and pinstripe trousers, and the red nose. And he was arm in arm with Miss Drapes. The staff stared at it all, too shocked for a reaction. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' said Bent, his voice echoing in the silence, "'I owe so many apologies. I have made many mistakes. Indeed, my whole life has been a mistake. I believed that true worth lodged in lumps of metal, metal which I doubt we shall see again. Much of what I believed is worthless, in fact, but Mr. Lipvig believed in me, and so I am here today. Let us make money based not on a trick of geology,' but on the ingenuity of hand and brain. And now, he paused because Miss Drapes had squeezed his arm. Oh, yes, how could I forget, Bent went on. 
What I do now believe with all my heart is that Miss Drapes will marry me in the Chapel of Fun in the Fool's Guild on Saturday, the ceremony to be conducted by the Reverend Brother Wacko Wapley. You are all, of course, invited. But be careful what you wear, because it's a whitewash wedding, said Miss Drapes coyly, or what she probably thought was coyly. And with that, it only remains for me to— Bent tried to continue, but the staff had realised what their ears had heard, and closed in on the couple, the women drawn to the soon-not-to-be-mistrapes by the legendarily high gravity of an engagement ring, and the men intent on slapping Mr. Bent on the back, and then doing the hitherto unthinkable, which involved picking him up and carrying him around the room on their shoulders. Eventually, it was Moist who had to cup his hands and shout, "'Look at the time, ladies and gentlemen! Our customers are waiting, ladies and gentlemen! Let us not stand in the way of making money!' We mustn't be a dam in the economic flow. And he wondered what Hubert was doing now. With his tongue out in concentration, Igor removed a slim tube from the gurgling bowels of the glooper. A few bubbles zigzagged to the top of the central hydro unit and burst on the surface with a gloop. Hubert breathed a deep sigh of relief. Well done, Igor. Only one more to... Igor? Right here, sir said Igor, stepping out from behind him. It looks as though it's working, Igor. Good old hyphenated silicon. But you're sure it'll still work as an economic modeler afterward? Yes, sir. I'm confident in the new valve array. The city will affect the glooper, if you wish, but not the other way around. Even so, it would be dreadful if it fell into the wrong hands, Igor. I wonder if I should present the glooper to the government. What do you think? Igor gave this some thought. In his experience, a prime definition of the wrong hands was the government. I think you ought to take the opportunity to get out a bit more, sir, he said kindly. Yes, I suppose I have been overdoing it, said Hubert. Um, about Mr. Lipvig. Yes. Hubert looked like a man who had been wrestling with his conscience and had got a knee in his eye. I want to put the gold back in the vault. That'll stop all this trouble. "'But it was stolen away years ago, sir,' Igor explained patiently. "'It wasn't your fault. It was not even there when the glooper was built.' "'No, but they were blaming Mr. Lipvig, who's always been very kind to us.' "'I think he got off on that one, sir.' "'But we could put it back,' Hubert insisted. "'It would come back from wherever it was taken to, wouldn't it?' Igor scratched his head, causing a faint metallic noise. He had been following events with more care than Hubert employed.' and as far as he could see, the missing gold had been disposed of by the lavishes years ago. Mr. Lipvig had been in trouble, but it seemed to Igor that trouble hit Mr. Lipvig like a big wave hitting a flotilla of ducks. Afterward, there was no wave, but there was still a lot of duck. It might, he conceded. So that would be a good thing, yes, Hubert insisted, and he's been very kind. We owe him that little favour. I don't think that is an order, Igor. Igor beamed. At last, all this politeness had been getting on his nerves. What an Igor expected was insane orders. That was what an Igor was born, and to some extent made, for. A shouted order to do something of dubious morality, with an unpredictable outcome, sweet. Of course, thunder and lightning would have been more appropriate. Instead, there was nothing more than the bubbling of the glooper and gentle glassy noises that always made Igor think he was in a wind chime factory but sometimes you just had to improvise. He closed the little valve on the bottom of a funnel that drained into the gold reserve flask, and then 
filled it to the ten tons marker, fiddled with the shiny valve array for a minute or two, and then stood back. When I turn this wheel, master, the glooper will deposit into the vault flask an analogue of ten tons of gold. This will cause ten tons of gold to gently appear in the vault, so that reality is in balance. As soon as this is done, the glooper will then close the connection. Very good, Igor. Uh, you wouldn't like to thump something, would you? Igor hinted. Like what? Oh, I don't know. Perhaps they said, sorry, said, sorry, I was mad, but this will show them. That's not really me. No, said Igor. Perhaps a laugh, then. Would that help? Yes, sir, said Igor. It will help me. Oh, very well, if you think it will help, said Hubert. He took a sip from the jug Igor had just used and cleared his throat. Ha! he said. <laughs> what a waste of a wonderful gift, thought Igor, and turned the wheel. Gloop! Even from down here in the vaults, you could hear the buzz of activity in the banking hall. Moist walked slowly under the weight of a crate of banknotes to Adora Bell's annoyance. Why can't you put them in a safe? Because they're full of coins. Anyway, we'll have to keep them in here for now and until we get sorted out. It's really just a victory thing, isn't it? Your triumph over gold? A bit, yes. You got away with it again? I wouldn't exactly put it like that. Gladys has applied to be my secretary. Here's a tip. Don't let her sit on your lap. I'm being serious here. She's ferocious. She probably wants my job now. She believes everything she reads. There's your answer, then. Good grief, she's the least of your problems. Every problem is an opportunity, said Moist primly. Well, if you upset Veterinary again, you will have a wonderful opportunity to never have to buy a hat. No, I think he likes a little opposition. And are you any good at knowing how much? No, that's what I enjoy. You get a wonderful view from the point of no return. Moist opened the vault and put the crate on a shelf. It looked a bit lost and alone but he could just make out the thudding of the press in the mint as they worked hard at providing it with company. Adorabelle leaned on the doorframe, watching him carefully. I keep hearing that while I was away you did all kinds of risky things. Is that true? I like to flirt with risk. It's always been a part of my life. But you don't do that kind of stuff while I'm around, said Adorabelle. So I'm enough of a thrill, am I? She advanced. The heels helped, of course, but Spike could move like a snake trying to sachet, and the severe, tight, and ostensibly modest dresses she wore left everything to imagination, which is much more inflammatory than leaving nothing. Speculation is always more interesting than facts. "'What are you thinking about right now?' she said. She dropped her cigarette stub and pinned it with a heel. "'Piggy banks,' said Moist instantly. "'Piggy banks?' "'Yes,' in the shape of not so much of a pig as the bank and the mint, to teach the kiddies the habits of thrift. The money could go in the slot where the bad penny is. Are you really thinking about money boxes? Uh, no, I'm flirting with risk again. That's better. Although you must admit, it's a pretty clever... Adorabelle grabbed Moist by the shoulders. Moist von Lipvig, if you don't give me a big wet kiss right now... Ow! Are there fleas down here? It felt like a hailstorm. The air in the vault had become a golden mist. It would have been pretty if it wasn't so heavy. It stung where it touched. Moist grabbed her hand and dragged her out as the teeming particles became a torrent. Outside, 
he took off his hat, which was already so heavy that it was endangering his ears, and tipped a small fortune in gold onto the floor. The vault was already half full. Oh, no, he moaned, just when it was going so well. Epilogue Whiteness, coolness, the smell of starch. Good morning, my lord. Cosmo opened his eyes. A female face, surrounded by a white cap, was looking down at him. Ah, so, it had worked. He had known it would. Would you like to get up, said the woman, stepping back. There were a couple of heavily built men behind her, also in white. This was just as it should be. He looked down at the place where a whole finger should be and saw a stump covered in a bandage. He couldn't quite remember how this had happened, but that was fine, after all. In order to change, something had to be lost as well as gained. That was fine. So this was a hospital. That was fine. This is a hospital, yes, he said, sitting up in the bed. Well done, your lordship. You are in the Lord Veterinary Ward, as a matter of fact. That is fine, Cosmo thought. So I endowed a ward at some time. That was very forward-looking of me. And those men are bodyguards, he said, nodding at the men. Well, they are here to see that no harm comes to you, said the nurse, so I suppose that's true. There were a number of other patients in the long ward, all in white robes, some of them seated and playing board games, and a number of them standing at the big window, staring out. They stood in identical poses, their hands clasped behind their backs. Cosmo watched them for some time. Then he stared at the small table where two men were sitting opposite each other, apparently taking turns to measure each other's foreheads. He had to pay careful attention for some time before he worked out what was going on. But Lord Vetinari was not a man to jump to conclusions. Excuse me, nurse, said Cosmo, and she hurried over. He beckoned her closer, and the two burly men drew nearer too, not taking their eyes off him. I know those people are not entirely sane, he said. They think they are Lord Vetinari, am I right? This is a ward for such people, yes? Those two are having an eyebrow-raising competition. You are quite right, said the nurse. Doesn't it puzzle them when they see one another? Not really, my lord. Each one thinks he's the real one. So they don't know that I am the real one? One of the guards leaned forward. No, my lord, we're keeping very quiet about it, he said, winking at his colleague. Cosmo nodded. Very good. This is a wonderful place to stay while I'm getting better. The perfect place to be incognito. That is exactly the plan, sir. Well done. You know, some sort of artificial skyline would make things more interesting for the poor souls at the window, he said. Ah, we can tell you're the real thing, sir, said the man, winking at his colleague. Cosmo beamed. And two weeks later, when he won the eyebrow-raising competition, he was happier than he'd ever been before. The Pink Pussycat Club was packed again tonight, except for seat seven, front row, centre. The record for anyone remaining in seat seven was nine seconds. The baffled management had replaced the cushions and the springs several times. It made no difference. On the other hand, everything else was going so inexplicably well lately. There seemed to be a good atmosphere in the club, especially among the dancers, who were working extra hard now that someone had invented a currency that could be stuck into a garter. Noisy drunks fell silent. Disrespectful punters were hurrying frantically out of the door even before the bouncers got to them. 
The whole place was running like a clock, the management concluded, and it somehow had to do with that empty seat. Well, a happy house was worth a seat, especially in view of what had happened when they tried to take the damn thing away. Hello, this is Cherry Jones, Tony Award-winning actress and narrator of The Little House on the Prairie audiobooks. As an audiobook listener, you know the pleasure of being captivated by a well-told story. You may not know that children who listen to audiobooks enjoy academic benefits as well. Hearing stories read aloud helps children reinforce important fundamental elements of reading readiness and reading comprehension, two key elements of overall success in school. When children listen to recorded stories, they hear and learn new vocabulary, and they practice active listening skills. Children can also listen up. Advanced readers can find challenging and complex stories. Delayed readers can listen and enjoy the story as a whole before breaking it down into smaller pieces. For all children, hearing a good book encourages a lifelong love of literature and reading. So, when you consider what to listen to next, why not also think about the pint-sized listeners in your life and select from one of the many available children's audiobooks. We hope you've enjoyed this program from Harper Audio. For more information about the broad range of titles from Harper Audio, Harper Children's Audio, and Cadman, please visit our website at harperaudio.com. You can also call 1-800-331-3761. That's 1-800-331-3761. Thank you for listening.